Hima Om Vishnu Paraya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shrimati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Sarasati Deve Gauravani Bhutani Namaste Sasuni Vali Paskachade Shatani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Parakapan Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana Raghunatam Vitaritam Sadhivam Sadhvaitam Sadhvaditam Paritana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Antikapadri Vishakam 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 Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya January 25th 2017 in Melbourne, Australia. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 28, Text 8. Sucho Deshe Pratishtapya Vijita Sana Asanam Tasmin Swasti Samasina Vidyukaya Samabhyaset Sucho Dese Sucho Dese In a sanctified place In a sanctified place Pratishtapya Pratishtapya After placing After placing Vijita Asana Vijita Asana Controlling the sitting postures Controlling the sitting postures Asana Asana A seat A seat Tasman Tasman In that place In that place Swasti Samasina Swasti Samasina Sitting in an easy posture Sitting in an easy posture Riju Kayaha Riju Keeping the body erect Keeping the body erect Samabhyaset Samabhyaset One should practice One should practice Translation for Port Paisha After controlling one's mind in sitting postures, one should spread a seat in a secluded and sanctified place, sit there in an easy posture, keeping the body erect, and practice breath control. Purport. Sitting in the easy posture is called Swasti Samasina. It is recommended in the yoga scripture. Well, let's see if we can do this. Okay? What do you think, Krishna? Do you think we can do this? That's this. It's recommended in the yoga scripture that one should put the soles of the feet between the two thighs and ankles. Can you sit like that? Put the bottoms of your feet between each thigh and ankle. Can you do that? You can have it. Uh, well, it could be inside or on the top or on. I think right right now you have it like on the bottom. Let me see you do it on the top. Really? Whoa. Very nice. Okay. This is such a nice example with this child that he's not coloring, he's not doing other things. Prabhupada didn't like the devotees doing other things during class. And we often make, you know, say, well, the little, little children, of course, little children. But it's so nice, he's so attentive. Very nice. Everybody should take the example from this child. And you come to the morning program, right? Pretty much every day? Do you come to morning program every day? This, the class of Mangalarti and Do you come pretty much every day? Huh? Mostly, yes, very nice. 
Oh, yeah, everybody misses sometimes, except Krishna, he never misses, he's always here. Okay, it is recommended in the yoga scripture that one should put the soles of the feet between the two thighs and ankles and sit straight. So how many of us are sitting like that now? And who's sitting like that now? Anybody? Nobody? Sort of? Okay. That posture will help one to concentrate his mind on the Supreme Personality body. That's the question people ask all the time. How can I help fix my mind on the Personality of Godhead? And one thing you can do is sit like that, it says. This very process is also recommended in Bhagavad Gita 6 chapter. It is further suggested that one sit in a secluded, sanctified spot. The seat should consist of deerskin and kusha grass topped with cotton. So I don't suggest we do that. It would be rather odd if in all of our temples we were sitting on deerskin. Right? Usually we just get these rug samples from some rug shop, isn't it? Sucho Dese Pratistapya Vidita Sanasanam Tasman Swasti Samasina Rijukaya Samabasit. After controlling one's mind in sitting postures, one should spread a seat in a secluded and sanctified place, sit there in an easy posture, keeping the body erect, and practice breath control. So here, Lord Kapila Dave is speaking about, in this chapter called Kapila's Instructions on Devotional Service. This is Canto 3, Chapter 28, Text 8. Uh, he's speaking about the external arrangements for helping to fix one's mind how you can externally set up your life. And the first thing that we want to note here is the relative position of authority and taking statements in the proper context. So here we have the Shastra itself. In the Shastra, Lord Kapiladev saying that we should do these things. And we have Srila Prabhupada in his purports just simply saying that we should sit on deer skin and kusha grass topped with cotton. And there's nothing in this particular purport to indicate whether or not the members of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness should actually do that. Isn't that correct? It's simply, it's simply a statement. And I mean, Prabhupada doesn't say one should. He says it is further suggested. This process is recommended. He says it's recommended. It's suggested. So Prabhupada isn't giving it as an order, but he is giving it as something that's a recommendation and as a suggestion. And he's, he's not making any, there's no caveat here at all that this is a time, place, and circumstance thing, that it's a contextual thing, nothing whatsoever. So one could easily take uh, this instruction in this purport and uh, we could have a GBC resolution that we throw out all of our carpet samples <laughs> and our, our sewn cushions in all of our temples all over the world. Right? Almost every temple you see these, these carpet samples for people to sit on. And that instead we get deer skin. What would you think? And we could say it, it's Shastra and it's Prabhupada's purport and so we should do that. And kusha grass, right? We become the major importer of kusha grass all over the world. Yeah. We start to have, just like in all of our temple shops, we have saris and dhotis and chudders, and so we'd start selling deerskin and kusha grass. So this is, uh, this is really a, a difficulty. How do we know which instructions from Srila Prabhupada in his purports are, should we be implementing? 
So this is a very complex topic that's related to the study of what's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you study uh, religious scripture, religious instructions, and how you understand the relative importance of it, how you understand things in context, what do you do when there's apparent contradictions, and, and so forth. So this is a very detailed study. The GBC set up a hermeneutics committee that was working for a few years, and then it dissolved. And now they've given this task to the Shastric Advisory Council, which I am, uh, at least for the present moment, the chair of. So this is something that we're looking at specifically, is you know how do we understand these statements? What do we apply and what do we not apply? And how do we decide that? I mean, somebody could say, well, Srila Prabhupada never actually had us do that in the Hare Krishna movement, and therefore uh, it's not an instruction for us, even though he doesn't say that in this purport. He doesn't explicitly say that. Now, perhaps somebody could find some place where someone asked Srila Prabhupada. I, I don't think so, but maybe you could find some place like that where someone said, well, I asked Prabhupada if we should use deer skin in kusha grass, and Prabhupada said no. But then somebody else could argue, well, and you, I hear this argument in, in other, about other things, somebody else could argue that, well, Srila Prabhupada made an adjustment in the beginning because we weren't ready for it, but this statement in the purport is when we're more advanced. And I, I hear this kind of thing presented in other contexts, which I won't name at the present time, but where Prabhupada, you know, devotees will say, Prabhupada made this allowance and that allowance and this allowance and that allowance, but in his purport, this is what he really wanted. And you could logically make that uh, statement because you could say that Srila Prabhupada's books and Prabhupada's purports are the highest level of authority that we have. Uh, they're a higher level of authority than Prabhupada's letters and, and conversations, which were very time, place, and circumstance. So you could make that argument. Uh, you could also make an argument that sitting on deerskin would really not be a very good thing for our preaching all over the world. That it would be very difficult to tell people that they shouldn't eat meat, fish, or eggs and then we're all sitting on deerskin. You know, that would be That people in the modern world wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be able to appreciate that. And so it would be harming our, our preaching. But how to understand things uh, and how to understand what to apply is very difficult. And therefore we have that verse from the Mahabharata that says that if you just rely on scripture, you'll find different statements in different places. And if you go to the Munis, you'll find that they each have their own opinion. So therefore you follow the path of the Mahajanas. And uh, our sc a scholar at Middlebury College, Burke Rufford, who's a great, been a great friend of the movement for a very long time, he was asking me again in a different a very different context than this. He said, what do we put more importance on? What Shula Prabhupada actually did or the things he wrote in his purports? And I said, we put more emphasis on what Shula Prabhupada actually did. And, and I find it fascinating, again, without mentioning the context or the names involved, please don't ask me because I won't tell you. But there's a, I was recently reading uh, some correspondence by one ISKCON leader who really uh, pushes in general that we should, you know, follow the, some heavy instructions that are in uh, the scriptures. But in this correspondence, he was saying, well, we should look more at what Srila Prabhupada did. And I, I found it very interesting uh, that basically people tend to pick and choose according to what they want to do. So if what they want to do is emphasize more on what Prabhupada did, then they emphasize that. And if what they want to do is emphasize more in the purports, then they emphasize that. 
You understand what I'm saying? Somebody decides what they want to do. How, how do I want to live? What do I want to do? And then they say, well, in this place Prabhupada's against it, but in this place Prabhupada's for it. I mean, there's a number of things that Prabhupada is very much in favor of in his purports, but in his letters he'll say, no, I don't want you to do this. So which, which do you follow and at what time? And this is a, it's a very complex topic. And I'm not trying to resolve that topic at this particular moment, in this particular class, uh, because that's many, many pages of research over uh, many, many months of many, many uh, minds and hearts and much prayer. But I want to bring up the fact that this exists. That if one reads a purport like this and says, all right, let me go out and get some deer skin and kushi grass and cover it with cotton and sit in this asana all the time, that you might not really be in Srila Prabhupada's mood. And you might not really uh, be pleasing Srila Prabhupada, that if Srila Prabhupada walked into your room and you said, well, Prabhupada, it's in the purport, you uh, might say, but I never told you to do that. There was one instance early in the movement where devotees were chanting on Sankirtan a mantra that they had read in the Bhagavatam. It had to be in the first canto because that was all that was published. And Prabhupada heard them chanting it and said, where did you get this mantra? And they said, Prabhupada, it's in your purports. He said, but I never told you to chant it in the kirtan. He said, it's a bona fide mantra, but I don't want you chanting it in the kirtan. At that time, the devotees were only chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, nothing else. And Prabhupada said, would you like to have another mantra to chant? And the devotees said, yes, Srila Prabhupada. And then he gave the Panchatattva Maha Mantra. So that was after one year of the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, so that's, that's one example. So whenever we decide, uh, Prabhupada wants this, we should do this, this has to be done, we should take things, as Prabhupada would often say, with a cool head. We should take things with a cool head and consider the the totality of Srila Prabhupada's instructions, consider also that Srila Prabhupada's instructions are in the context of the previous acharyas, they're in the context of the Shastra, and then apply according to time, place, and circumstance. And this is one of the things that Srila Prabhupada wanted us to do as a society. And I want to look specifically at what's being discussed here, and I wanted to focus on two words in particular, sochal and swasti. So Shochao literally means what? Sanctified. Sanctified, yes, okay. The, that's kind of a, a more extrapolated meaning. The literal meaning would be what? Clean. Clean. Literal meaning is clean. So it should be a clean place. And sanctified is mentioned here because we're not just talking about you swept it and you washed it with disinfectant. At least in certain parts of India, there's a certain kind of disinfectant that's very popular. And anytime you go into any room, it always smells like this disinfectant. Yes? Or uh, I once had the great misfortune of riding on an Indian train. And <laughs> the third class compartment. And, and as you would walk past the toilet room, it, it had this strange mixture smell of urine and disinfectant mixed together. I asked, how do they clean the place? They said, well, they take a bottle of disinfectant and just throw it in the room. You know, just splash it in the room and, and walk away, and that was how they cleaned it. But anyway, we don't mean just cleaning like that or just vacuuming or something like that, uh, which, by the way, doesn't clean anything. 
So we're not just talking about that, that kind of, of clean, therefore we have the word sanctified. And then we have the word swasti, which here, very interestingly, Srila Prabhupada is translating as what? What word is Prabhupada using to translate swasti? Easy. Easy. He's translating this easy. What do we, how do we generally translate the word swasti? Swar is to do with one's own self. One's own self, yeah. Asti to be. Uh, usually it's translated as auspicious, good fortune, peaceful. And it's, I find it interesting, Prabhupada's translating here is easy. So let's look at these two words cleanliness and auspiciousness or, or ease. <laughs> so a clean and sanctified place. So basically, what we're being advised is that we should do our meditation and our worship in a clean and sanctified place. So one of the wonderful things about this temple here in Melbourne is it's a very clean temple. I visit many temples all over the world, and I must say that not all of them are clean. Uh, Some of them are really, 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 really dirty. And some of them are just really dirty, and some of them are just dirty. Uh, But I've been to temples where the deities are gorgeous, and then the temple room is, is cluttered. It looked like some, you know, hoarder who's trying to be reformed has been in the temple room. And there's dirt everywhere and, and so forth and so on. And the prasada room is dirty. So you really have a nice situation here that every, this is a very clean temple. Anywhere you go in the, in the building, wherever you go on the grounds, everything is very clean. And Srila Prabhupada said that in Gurukul we should be training the children to be revolutionary clean. Revolutionary. And this uh, cleanliness or lack of cleanliness, in my experience, is a problem uh, and an issue in every culture, among every ethnicity, among every country. It's not that just Westerners are dirty and Indians are clean. Uh, I remember I thought like that until I went to India, and then I never thought like that again. So one (laughs) one should be very, very clean. Uh, one should be very clean in a technical sense, that things should be swept and then cleaned with water. Um, this is true also, by the way, for rugs. Uh, well, Prabhupada didn't so much like places with, with carpeting. And I know whenever we had to live in a place with carpeting, if it was a rental place, we would buy a carpet steamer that would use water on the carpet. And inevitably, unless it was a brand new carpet, the water would turn black. I'm pulling out the, the dirt from the carpet and if that would go on if I clean if I steam clean the carpet twice a week it would take months like four or five months before the water would start stop turning black and uh, you know if things couldn't be washed like that Prabhupada would want them covered with a white cloth whenever you would visit Srila Prabhupada uh, he would have a white cloth if there was a carpeted floor he'd have a white cloth on the top and then that cloth was cleaned Regularly, and the devotees who clean Prabhupada's room would talk about how particular Srila Prabhupada was. He would look for the dirt on the inside of the stapler, you know, like when you opened up the stapler. <laughs> if, there was, if there was dirt inside, I mean, uh, when uh, I got married, my, my husband used to be a Navy lieutenant, and so he was trained to clean like that. You know, they would come with a white glove, they would touch everything in the military. So that's how he trained me to clean. So he cleaned all the little corners and the edges and the cornices and, and everything like that. And that was how Srila Prabhupada wanted things cleaned. 
And frankly, he wanted them clean like that every day, which is probably beyond the capacity of most of us. But he had this concept of having our places being revolutionary clean. You know, just absolutely sparkling clean. And then to have very, very clean clothes. Right? So uh, many people out in the world don't wash their clothes every day. In fact, you can look on the internet how often to wash your clothes. Right? And I'll tell you. Blue jeans you can wear for a week or two. And <laughs> so, you know, I remember my mother being shocked when I joined the movement that I was washing my clothes every day. She was like, that's way too often to wash your clothes. Why to speak of uh, washing, getting to clean clothes several times a day? Most people in pujaris, they're changing their clothes, right, at least three times a day. I know some pujaris are changing their clothes a lot more often than that. So, you know, always having very clean clothes. And then keeping the body very clean. Now, Prabhupada talked about bathing two or three times a day, which again, you know, for most of us, it's like two or three times a day. Most of us in non-tropical climates don't think about bathing that often. So having a very clean body, Uba Goswami says one should have very clean teeth. So keeping the body clean, keeping the clothes clean, keeping the, the environment uh, revolutionary clean. Uh, but we're not just looking at the physical cleanliness. And we are looking at the physical cleanliness, by the way. It's not that we're not. Uh, a few other things we could say about physical cleanliness. And, and I, I can't say that I've done all these myself, okay? just saying that Prabhupada says this. So I'm talking about an ideal for me to come to also, okay? I'm not here like I'm the most clean person in the world. But Prabhupada didn't like black on the bottoms of pots. You know, especially if you cook over a gas stove, it gets black on the bottom. And Yamuna followed this. She followed this so uh, carefully that although she wore white clothes, she would take a pot that's, that had prasadam in it to serve, and she could put it on her lap. If you could imagine the bottom of a pot being that clean. And, and Srila Prabhupada would ask, you know, to scrub the bottom until it's shiny, not just the inside. So, and again, we have to say that we don't, we don't even see anything close to the standard in all of our ISKCON temples. You know, I, I go to temples where they have a deity kitchen that's clean and very small, and then they have a devotee kitchen that's very big and, frankly, very dirty, where people are walking in there with their shoes and there's you know, stuff all over the place. And sometimes they visit devotees' homes also where there's just you know, food everywhere and, and, a, and a filthy stove, and you, you don't even want to go into the kitchen. Prabhupada talked about uh, cleanliness, though, not just on that level of cleaning the gross body and the gross clothes and the gross room and the gross things. Uh, but here the Socha is also refer- referring to sanctification. So we have, of course, our kind of ritual cleanliness where we do achman, for example. You know, we do some uh, a sort of ritual cleaning in that way. But also we want to have everything very sanctified. We want to have everything very pure. So this would involve not just cleaning away physical little bits of dirt, but it also means the sounds that we're hearing, the sounds that we're making, the pictures on the walls. Right? Every, everything around us to be a sanctified place. And then also I was thinking in terms of noise. I really like how the Christian writer C.S. Lewis, he says that the demoniac people like neither silence nor music. They simply like noise. And I, 
became very aware of this one year when I was at the Woodstock Festival in Poland. And we were taking Rathiatra around the festival, and there were these people, uh, they were dressed all in black, uh, and other strange uh, accoutrements decorating them. And they were playing this stuff that I wouldn't call music. It was just sounded like wolves howling or something. It was just this, this terrible noise. And I thought, okay, yes, this is the idea of hell that is just kind of a noise. And our modern cities are like that, isn't it? In our, in our modern cities, there's just this cacophony of noise in the downtown area, and especially in some parts of the world where it's just noise and noise. And so one should have a a place that's full of beautiful music or that's very quiet. Now, of course, having said all of this, the ultimate sanctified place is where we can do service. And we should never prefer cleanliness and sanctification over our service. The devotee is willing to go to hell to preach Krishna consciousness. And the devotee is willing to go to a place uh, that is dirty and polluted and that is not at all sanctified for the sake of preaching Krishna consciousness. This is, uh, that is the ultimate sanctification, is what is our service. Of course, we shouldn't make our own environment dirty and stinky and noisy. <laughs> That's not what I'm We didn't talk about smells. Right? So you go someplace where things are not, they're not smelling nicely. You know, somebody has an overflowing nappy bin or something like that. They have their... I've been to places... You know, they have their, their compost is rotting on the kitchen counter or so forth. We, we visit one beautiful, beautiful temple. The temple itself is very nice, but the property next to the temple, which is owned by devotees, uh, is like a, a cesspool swamp that just smells like sewage. So this is a gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful temple, but as soon as you walk out of the temple, the property next to it, which, as I said, is owned by devotees, is the whole place smells like you're, you know, some kind of a sewage treatment plant. So, but the point is that above all of those things, we want to be in a place that's for service. We don't prefer to be in a wonderful, clean, sanctified place over service. So if we have to go to Beijing to preach, which is a very dirty city, Beijing or Mexico City or Delhi, you know, in India they call it Heli Smelly Delhi. <laughs> But we'll go there to preach. When Srila Prabhupada landed in Boston Harbor, he said, I don't know why, dear Lord, you have brought me to such a terrible place. So for the mood of the devotee, wherever they go, if there's service, they make the place sanctified. And this is the, it was a verse spoken to Vidura, that Vidura, wherever you go, you make the place like a tirtha. And Srila Prabhupada says that if we chant Hare Krishna, and while we're chanting, we make a diamond throne for Krishna in our heart, and we place Krishna there, and we're bathing him with Ganga and Jamuna water in our imagination, and dressing him and ornamenting him in our mind. Then he says, wherever we go, that place becomes a sanctified place. So, then we're looking at this easy and auspiciousness, this swasti, to have everything auspicious. And this is really a proper attitude for meditation. This attitude, this auspicious attitude for meditation is here talked about in a very gross sense of sitting in a particular way, of having the feet and the, and the legs, etc., in a very particular way. 
And it's, again, it's interesting that Prabhupada is equating here something auspicious with something easy. You know, that we should make an auspicious situation for ourselves, but not with great difficulty. Srila Prabhupada didn't want us to practice some sort of severe austerities. You know, our severe austerity is getting rid of our false ego. And I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, that's severe enough austerity. And Prabhupada would say, rising early, following the four regular principles, that's enough austerity. He talked about this with the children. He said, going to Mangalartik, you know, that's enough austerity. Prabhupada didn't want us to do some heavy, heavy duty austerities. In fact, he wasn't very favorable for it at all. So to make things that are auspicious, but yet that are easy for us. Achille Prabhupada talks about the nectar devotion, not doing an over-endeavor. And he defines over-endeavor as don't take vows in spiritual life that you can't keep. You know, don't, if, if you're not ready for initiation, don't take initiation yet. You know, do what you can to prepare for initiation. If you only chant two rounds a day or you can only follow two regular principles or one regular principle, then do that and, and maintain it until you can gradually add more and do what you can maintain. Not that you, you know, try to do something all the way to the limit of the sky and then you fall on your face. But something that you can maintain and you can advance. So this is very much in this idea of having an easy posture, an easy situation. Uh, to have something that's firm and fixed, we have the words uh, pratista, sta means this place, something that's fixed, deshe, a place. So we're talking about things that are fixed. But at the same time, soft and uh, easy. And I've given this analogy before, just like when you're carrying flowers. If you're carrying flowers for the deities, you know, so I regularly pick flowers in the morning for my worship. And a lot of these flowers are very delicate. And some of these flowers, if you just hold them too tightly, they turn all brown and, and bruised. And by the time you walk five minutes to your altar, they're not offerable anymore. So you want to hold the flowers very firmly so you don't drop them. But at the same time, you don't want to hold them so tightly that you bruise them. So this is the kind of easy asana that Prabhupada's speaking about here. We want to have practices that are firm and steady and maintainable and yet easy. And, and not something harsh, that's something that we're straining. If we're straining to do something, you know, if we're always struggling to do something, then we, we tend not to be able to maintain it. Now the purpose of these postures and the purpose of the breath, and we'll be talking tomorrow about the breath, is to have your, your mind in a state of detachment. That's the whole point of all of this, is to fix your mind on the personality of Godhead. And Srila Prabhupada makes that point here. The point is to fix your mind on the personality of God. The point is not to do these things for their own sake. We're not interested even in cleanliness for its own sake. You know, obviously cleanliness is related to physical health and mental health, but we're not interested just in, in these things. We're interested in a situation that will help us fix our mind on the personality of God. That's the ultimate litmus test of whatever we're doing. You know, and you find sometimes that devotees make, again, in regard to what I was talking about at the beginning of the class, that devotees will sometimes make ironclad rules. Everybody has to sit like Prabhupada said in this purport for the whole 16 rounds of japa and don't move, and that's the only good japa. You know, and I've heard people preach like this. But actually, it's whatever situation enables us personally in our lives to fix our mind on the personality of God. That's the point. 
and uh, we'll be talking about this a little bit more tomorrow about uh, japa and kirtan and chanting and fixing one mind because that's more the subject of the verse for tomorrow. But the point is more what is the essence, what is the principle, not what is the detail. The, the detail of deer skin and the detail of putting the soles of your feet in a particular place is not the point. The point is what will help me to fix. Like I'm sitting like this and now my left foot has fallen asleep. And so if I continue to sit like that, I don't want any circulation in my foot. And so I'm not going to say, well, I'm just going to sit like that, you know, and become like Hirani Kashipu, who stood in one posture for so long that actually all of his muscles have trophied and hope that Lord Brahma comes with his kamandalu, hi Lord Brahma, and showers my left foot with some magical water and restores it. You know, but the, that, so that, that's not the point. You know, and, and people who get into these external things as the point uh, then lose the essence of bhakti completely. They, they, they don't understand what is the essence of bhakti. And I've, I've seen so many things like this from devotees, adding so many hard and fast rules, especially to chanting. There aren't any hard and fast rules. But they're adding all these hard and fast rules. You can only chant like this, and you can only chant in this place, and you can only chant this time. And you can only... I asked one leader, what is the highest form of japa? And he said, to get all your 16 rounds done by 7 in the morning. And I thought, well, that's pretty external, and the poor pujaris are going to struggle with that one. You know, or the cooks in the morning. You know, I've been in situations where I was doing the, the morning cooking for all the devotees, a big meal for all the devotees. And also I was going on the altar and taking care of the deities. So I was going, you know, taking care of the deities and I was just in the kitchen. And the only thing I had time to chant in the morning was Gayatri. And then I couldn't, you know, didn't chant the rest of my rounds until starting at 10. <laughs> so people make these sort of, these sort of rigid rules and they forget about the essence. You know, like Virgin Prabhupada, well, Prabhupada, how do you tell the difference between a principle that can't be changed and a detail that must be changed? And Prabhupada said that requires intelligence. Another time Prabhupada wrote a devotee in another context. He said, use your common sense, and if you don't have anybody, ask someone who does. <laughs> you know, which is one of my favorite Prabhupada quotes. So we have to see what helps me remember Krishna. What is it that helps me remember Krishna? Some devotees will find that they really remember Krishna sitting in front of the deities and, and chanting. Other devotees will find if they sit in a certain way and they breathe in a certain way. Other people will find, you know, if they read something from the Shastra first. I mean, different people are going to find different situations that will help them to fix their mind on Krishna. But that's the point. The point of the cleanliness, the point of the auspiciousness is to help us remember Krishna and never forget him. That's the point. And if that's not happening, then there's not, no point to anything that we're doing. And if that is happening, then even the other things may not be in order and it doesn't really matter in the ultimate issue. I mean, what is the purpose of these detailed rules of uh, cleanliness and auspiciousness? They are to create, they're not really spiritual. Okay, these things, these two things, cleanliness and auspiciousness or easiness, they're not really spiritual. What are they? What's their purpose? To bring us to the mode of goodness. Exactly. To bring us to the mode of goodness. And Krishna says in the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam that if you're not yet transcendentally realized, you should try to be in the mode of goodness. 
So let's look just a little bit at the modes of material nature. So the mode of ignorance is I define happiness by pleasures from my senses and my ego. That's what I call happiness. I see nice things, I smell nice things, I taste nice things, I hear nice things, and people always tell me how wonderful I am. I'm the greatest, I'm perfect, powerful, and happy. There is nobody as great and wonderful as I am, and anyone who says that I am not the greatest, I will punch them. So that's very much the mode of ignorance. Anyone who takes away my food, anyone who takes away my wealth, anyone, you know, I will hurt them. I will just try to destroy my enemies. And I want to get these things immediately, however. I want to get good tasting food immediately, and I don't really care whether or not it's healthy. I don't really care what the karma of it is. That's what we call fast food. Fast food is very much, the whole concept is very much a tamagoon concept. I want food immediately. I want it fast. And I don't care if it's old. I don't care if it's disgusting. I don't care if it's a product of violence. I don't care what kind of karma I'm doing, I'm getting. I don't care how I'm hurting the earth. I don't care. I'm hurting, nothing. I just want it now. And I want to get rid of my pain now. So I will, you know, take some intoxicant or I will sit in front of the TV because I want to get rid of my pain right now and I don't care what the consequence of it is. So that's very much a mode of ignorance. Defining happiness in terms of the bodily senses and the ego with uh, not care, with very immediate satisfaction and not at all caring about the consequences of one's actions. So then in the mode of passion, we still have this idea that happiness is for the body and the mind. That's still there. That hasn't changed. Uh, but the idea is more, I should get happiness for the body and the mind by doing dharmic activities. And I don't just want people to tell me that I'm great. I want people to tell me that I'm great and dharmic. You understand? So the mode of ignorance, you just want people to say, wow, you're really cool, you're really wonderful. In the mode of passion, you want people to say, you are kind, you are charitable, you are heroic, you are righteous. Do you understand a little bit of a difference? So in the mode of ignorance, if someone says, hey, you're a great thief, and if you ask somebody in the mode of ignorance, you know, why aren't you follow why didn't why didn't you follow the law? Oh, because I'm very smart. Therefore I don't have to follow the law. So that's a mode of ignorance kind of ego. And the mode of passion kind of ego is I am great because I followed the law. I am great because I gave in charity and I rode at the front of the column into the battle. And I saved the damsels in distress, right? In the mode of ignorance, you're great because you exploit the women. And in mode of passion, is you're great because you protect the women. So a different idea of being great. And people want to get sense gratification in the mode of passion that uh, they're willing to wait for, they're willing to work for. They get very proud of their sacrifice. I worked hard for this home. I worked hard for all these things. So that's very much the mode of passion. And it's all, again, but it's all very external based. And human society in general is in the mode of passion. Mode of passion is about bigger, better, bigger, better, bigger, better, bigger, better, bigger. The problem with the mode of passion is because one's happiness is externally based, 
If you can't get it through sacrifice, you might dip down into the mode of ignorance and try to get it anyway, in some other way. The good thing about the mode of passion is you want external happiness in a dharmic way. Okay, the mode of goodness is not about external happiness. It's not about the happiness of the senses, and it's not about the happiness of the ego. But it is about the happiness of the mind and the intelligence. It's not about the happiness of the soul. It's about the happiness of the mind and the intelligence. A person in the mode of goodness wants an inner happiness that I am dharmic. So the person in the mode of passion wants everyone else to tell them how dharmic they are. The person in the mode of goodness doesn't care one bit about whether or not other people tell them how dharmic they are. They don't care about people criticizing them. They don't care about the dualities. But they care about how they feel inside. They want to feel very balanced. They want to feel in harmony. They want to feel, I've done the right thing for the right reason because it feels so good inside. Because then I feel peaceful, and then I feel equipoise, and then I feel happy, and then I feel detached. And that kind of happiness is the only thing in this world that even approaches any real happiness. So people in the mode of goodness, they're not interested in giving big charity. The mode of goodness people are not your big philanthropists. It's the mode of passion people who are your big philanthropists. We want to do bigger and better, bigger and better, and have a big plaque up on the wall. The people in the mode of goodness, they're happy in doing some little thing that nobody notices that makes them feel good inside. The people in the mode of passion, they want to forgive. People in the mode of ignorance, they're into vengeance. People in the mode of passion, they want to forgive so everybody can praise them for being so forgiving. The people in the mode of goodness, they want to forgive because then they're peaceful inside. Uh, so the problem with the mode of goodness, of course, is that you can become stuck there and you can think, oh, I am so peaceful and happy. I don't, I don't need anything else. I am enjoying the world. All three modes are about enjoying the world. One is enjoying the world by being a bad guy. One is enjoying the world by being a, a good guy to expand your kingdom. And one is about being, enjoying the world by being a good guy so you feel good inside. But they're all about enjoying the world. They're all very me-centered. They're all very egotistical, actually. You know, the mode of goodness person thinks, I don't care if people praise me or not because I am so balanced and I am so good. And of course, that's a little touch of the mode of passion. But the person in the mode of goodness is thinking, yes, I am happy. Yes, I am peaceful. Right? The person in the mode of ignorance or passion thinks, I am happy because of my externals. And the person in the mode of goodness thinks, I am happy because of my internals. So the mode of goodness has this problem that one can get attached to the peace and the happiness and the equanimity and the balance and not want to go further. And if you really get into the mode of goodness, I was just reading the Sudan Yektor Devotion, you get all these mystic powers. And then you get really attached to them. However, of all the three modes, The mode of goodness is the best platform for bhakti. And the reason for that is in the mode of goodness, your mind is peaceful. And you have a sense of detachment from the duality of the world. You're you're detached from the heat and cold, happiness and distress, honor, dishonor, fame and infamy, friends and enemies. You have that sense of detachment and the mind can be still. And therefore, Krishna advises the mode of goodness for those who are not yet in transcendence. 
And also he specifically says that the happiness in the mode of goodness can lead to self-realization. As soon as the mind is still and peaceful, then the mind can become aware of the Lord in the heart and the mind can become aware of the presence of the real self. I mean, even on a gross external platform, when we're very distracted, we may not notice things in our environment that are right in front of our face, isn't it? But if we become peaceful and calm, then we can actually take in our whole environment. In fact, some of the heavy uh, emotions like anger and fear, which materially are very much in the mode of ignorance, lust, lust, anger, fear, greed, physiologically they narrow a person's vision so that they don't become aware of what's in their environment, which is useful if you're being chased by a bear or something. Uh, but it's only the mode of goodness where the mind is very peaceful that you become aware, oh, you start to actually see, you have an experience. I am a soul, and, and there is God. And therefore we find, even in the context of engaging in bhakti, which doesn't depend on a situation as a mode of goodness, the mode of goodness is, Prabhupada's using the words here, recommended and suggested. Prabhupada is not saying it's absolutely necessary, but he's saying it's recommended and suggested. So that's the purpose of these things. The purpose of the cleanliness, the purpose of the sanctification, the purpose of the auspiciousness, the pur purpose of even the easy posture, not straining. Straining is very much a symptom of mode passion. So the purpose of these things is to situate the mind in the mode of goodness, which, by the way, is its natural factory setting, we could say. The mind is a manifestation of Aniruddha, not Aniruddha Das, temple president of Iskand Melbourne, uh, but uh, Aniruddha, the quadruple expansion of the Lord. Uh, it's, it's a manifestation of Aniruddha, and it is a manifestation of Sattva Gun. So when you, the mind is in its natural factory setting of Sattva Gun, then self-realization can come. But bhakti is a very interesting kind of yoga, and one can come to bhakti even directly from Tamagun. Who came to bhakti directly from Tamagun? Yes? I'm just answering your question. Directly from Tamagun. Yeah. And then you're performing, not bhakti, but you're performing devotional service that will give you. It will give you that. And what person did that? What persons did that in our in our shastras? Went directly from Tamagun to Bhakti. Didn't first go to the mode of goodness. Valmiki, yes, as you were going to say, yes. Migrari, the hunter, yes. Who else? Gajendra. That's an interesting symbol. Jagai Madai. Jagai Madai. Uh, the prostitute with Haridas Thakur. Ajamyo, yes. Huh? Putana. So there's many examples in the Shastra of persons who went directly from Tamagun to Bhakti. They didn't go through Sattva. By going through Bhakti, they started manifesting external behaviors like one in Sattva but it was bhakti that caused them to live like somebody in sattva -gun. It wasn't sattva -gun that was the platform for their bhakti. And such was the way that Srila Prabhupada preached. 
Prabhupada did not preach to people, first come to Satvagun and then do bhakti. He said, do bhakti. And what happens when you do bhakti is you naturally want to live in a way that looks externally like Satvagun. Of course, we tried to organize our temples, our community, and our lives to be in Satvagun. The four regular principles are only about Satvagun. Those are not transcendent principles. They're Satvagun principles. But we should be very careful not to be attached to Satvagun. And coming directly to Bhakti means having an affectionate attachment to Krishna. When one is attached to Krishna with affection, with emotion, one naturally wants to be clean. One naturally wants to be sanctified. In fact, one brings that cleanliness and sanctification with him. But not always we find uh, what of our acharyas you see on the wall that did not live in a clean or sanctified place. Which one of our? Gorkishar, that's Babaji. He felt that living in a dirty, stinky place was more <laughs> conducive for his bhakti than living in a clean, sanctified place. How interesting. Because that way people would leave him alone. And we may have preaching that takes us to unclean and unsanctified places. Certainly our bhakti is not dependent on being in clean and sanctified places. But if it's within our power to clean and sanctify our place, we should do so. And not because we want to be in the mode of goodness, but because that would make the Lord happy. We want the Lord to sit in our heart. We want the Lord to sit in our life. And he's only going to do that in a clean and sanctified place. And most likely, for most of us, most of the time, having a clean and sanctified environment, sitting posture, etc., will be the most conducive for our remembering the Lord. And as we remember the Lord, we want to have a clean and sanctified, uh, not stressful situation. So they, they work with each other. The more I remember Krishna the more I want the externals of my life to be not stressful and, and clean and sanctified and auspicious. And having that environment for most of us, most of the time, is very helpful for us to remember. So questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions, chastisements. Sometimes I get them in, I might as well ask them. Yes? Mother, there are two questions. this you spoke about the mode of goodness. Yes. And uh, when we attend outreach, we, we meet a lot of people and there's a growing awareness of mindfulness. Mm. People trying to yes. live in the present, be yes. distracted. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, they definitely live more like a mode of goodness. That is a mode of goodness inclination. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but if you combine with this, sometimes it's, um, it's a bit more difficult for them to practice Krishna consciousness than people living in fashion and ignorance. Yes, I've seen the same thing. I've seen that often people who are in the mode of goodness uh, are the least interested in taking up Krishna consciousness rather than people in the modes of passion and ignorance. Um, and the reason is that in the mode of goodness you actually experience some happiness in this world. In the mode of passion and ignorance you don't. There's nothing. I mean, Krishna says in the mode of ignorance there's no happiness at all. In the mode of passion, there is periodic, brief times of sensory and ego happiness that's mixed with a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety. Because all external happiness is not under our control, right? 
we can't absolutely control whether we'll have sensory or mental pleasure. Right? Like we can get really sick. Nice to see you here. I hope you're feeling good. So we can get really sick. It's not under our control. So if your happiness is tied with health, you know, your happiness is tied with wealth, and your happiness is tied with acclaim, you're living in a constant state of anxiety. Whereas in the mode of goodness, your happiness isn't tied with any of those things. You're walking around with your own happiness generator. Uh, a very, a, one of the best-selling books on mindfulness and Buddhist meditation is called Joy on Demand. And, you know, it talks about how if you lead a life of, of meditation and, and, and a life in the mode of goodness, that then you can always have joy. You know, of course, his conclusion is that there's no self, which is an unfortunate conclusion. So people who are experiencing some happiness in the mode of goodness uh, may be less inclined to look for spiritual happiness because they may think they already have it. Someone in the mode of passion and ignorance is much more aware that they don't have spiritual happiness. Of course, the person in the mode of passion may uh, be very religious. And we also have the same problem with very religious people in the mode of passion, that we have a hard time getting them to take up Krishna consciousness. So if they're like, you know, I take care of my family and I go to church or I go to the mosque and, you know, and, I'm a, and I follow all the rules of my religion and I've got God and I'm... But it's very mode of passion. It's very, I am a religious person. You know, if that's their, their thing, then, yeah, it's hard because they think they already have it. Whereas persons who are just mode of passion, secular, or person mode of ignorance, as soon as we tell them about real spirituality, they can immediately compare it to their life and see that they don't have it. Does that mean that we should encourage people to be in the mode of passion without God or in the mode of ignorance? And sometimes you hear devotees say these things. They say, well, it would be really good if there were atom bombs blowing up the world and there were an economic crisis because then people will be more interested in Krishna consciousness. And I just think, whoa, that's attractive preaching. Let's go to the world and say, we really hope everything is destroyed and falls apart, so then you'll be interested in what we have to say. You can imagine saying that to an individual, you know. I hope that you get a physical and mental disease and your whole family leaves you, and you get in poverty and your house burns down, because then maybe then you'll be open to what I'm telling you. You do find that when there's Krishna in the Shastra, when the world is Krishna conscious, it's also very materially prosperous. And most people in the world are in goodness or the higher echelons of passion. So in a generally Krishna conscious society, that is what we would expect. Now, what do you have to say to people in the mode of goodness? You say to them, you don't say to people in the mode of goodness, life is terrible. You're just suffering so much. Because you know what? They're not. It's not, it's not going to resonate with them. They're like, I'm not suffering. I'm kind of peaced out. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of floating. What you say to them is, hey, you like what you have? Yeah. How would you like that to be unlimited? That's what you say. Because the mode of goodness is limited. Mode of goodness, it's, it's, it's cool, mode of goodness. It is. I mean, of all the modes, it's a nice mode. It really is. You feel peaceful, you feel detached, you're not affected by what people say about you, 
you get along with people, you can love everybody, you can even like everybody, you don't get offended, you bring peace and happiness to others, your bodily health is in balance. It's, a ni- it's nice. It is. So acknowledge that. Hey, you like what you have? Are you enjoying your, your meditation and your mindfulness? Suppose you could take that to a higher level. That's what you say. You appreciate what they have because they do have something. You know, and, and people at the higher levels of the mode of passion also. The people who are very, their ego is very wrapped up in the idea of dharma. The mode of goodness also, but it's a little different. So these people whose ego is very wrapped up in the mode of dharma, you can't go to them immediately. I mean, you can, but it won't be effective. And say, you know, you're just a hog, dog, camel, and ass. It, it's not... I mean, if somebody really is, then they might look around and say, whoa, I really am. But somebody who's on a, on a little higher level, you can't deal with them that way. And, and somebody who's in the higher level of the mode of passion, you say, it's very wonderful that you're, that you're religious. I mean, if they're into Christianity, for example, you could say, you know, that Jesus said to his disciples, I'm not telling you everything. I haven't told you everything. You're not ready to hear everything. You know Jesus said that, right? Yeah, I know Jesus said that. Do you think there's ever a time that God actually gives a little bit more information? Jesus never said, I'm on the end. He said, I'm the way. No one comes but through me. Okay, but we're going through Jesus. We accept Jesus. Yes? We all accept Jesus? Yes? Anybody? No. But Jesus said there was more to tell. Would you be interested in that? He says that. And Jesus says that all scripture is for, I forget the exact word in Timothy, all scripture is for edification and purification. He said all scriptures. Would you have any interest in some some scriptures that give more information and continue to uh, respect and go through Jesus without any, without any denial of Jesus and without any any uh, minimization of Jesus? Because you know the Muslims they accept Jesus but they minimize him. So the Christians don't. So you can you can you can preach to them in, in that way. Would you like to take things to a higher level? Would you like a society, would you like to find a society where the highest parts of Jesus' teachings, or the highest parts of Muhammad's teachings, or the highest parts of the teachings of the Old Testament are actually, or the highest teachings of Lord Buddha, whatever particular faith they're attached to, are actually manifest because we see in these other religions that they tend, and this is a problem for us too, by the way, that very quickly things tend to go to a lower level of practice. You follow? Dharma tends to become a dharma. And we have to work about, about this in our Hare Krishna movement too, by the way. Prabhupada never said Iskam was immune to becoming polluted. In fact, he warned us of many ways in which it could become. So we have to be careful that Iskam doesn't become some ordinary mundane dharma. And that's the tendency in almost every religious system. And we can say, you know, look, in, this is the tendency. Has this happened? Yes, anybody would have to say that. So how can we find the highest parts? Is there a place you can find that? Instead of just trying to smash them and bash them and crash them. 
Is that all right? I find it, I, I personally find if you go through that tactic, people become open because that's more truthful. Yeah. My question is, if you are uh, living with somebody uh, who are not, uh, um, like, we are cooperating with you, yes. deeply, ah. in the circumstances, what should be the, our approach? If we live with someone who's not cooperating with us in cleaning. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I know of one situation where there's some devotees that by circumstance are living with a, another family and the other family they're living with, uh, their food habits are very uh, interesting. You know, they never clean their kitchen, so the stove always has several layers of burnt milk on it and they uh, take half-eaten plates of prasadam and stick them in the refrigerator on top of other half-eaten plates of prasadam and there'll be a bowl of soup in the refrigerator and they take a plate of half-eaten prasadam and put it on top of the bowl of soup without a lid so that the plate falls into the bowl of soup. And they were describing to me what it's like staying in this house. And, and in, that, in that family, people just go into the kitchen whenever they want and they just take a plate of whatever they want and they take it to their room and they eat however much they want in their room and they leave the half-eaten plate full of food in their room and on the furniture and everything. And this other family is stuck for reasons beyond their control uh, staying with this family. So what they've done is they keep their own space very clean. They do a minimum amount of cooking in the kitchen. They're eating very, very simple things or just making things like salads and bread and a bread maker and, and something where they don't have to use all the space in the kitchen. And, and then they have another place where they're eating and keeping clean. They've made their own little kind of oasis there. I mean, that's what I try to do. I try to make an oasis for myself. My psychological oasis is my own little traveling altar, which takes up about half the room of this podium. And uh, wherever I go, as soon as I set up my altar, then I'm okay. And then I just kind of block out whatever else is there if I need to block out whatever else is there. If it's really bad, I mean, I've only twice, no, three times, have I gone to some place that was so bad that I actually had to take some sort of action. You know, where things were so outrageously dirty that I couldn't even set up my little traveling altar until, until I did a major maha cleaning. And then I just try not to offend anybody. And I just say, um, um, could I get a bucket and a rag? I did one time, gosh, many, 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 many years ago, have a temple president be very offended with me because I started cleaning the temple. And he came up to me and said, why are you cleaning? I was just trying to do some service. He said, are you saying that it wasn't already clean? Uh, no, 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 it's fine. No problem. <laughs> so, that was definitely one of my most bizarre experiences in the Hare Krishna. How dare you clean our temple? And I was like, sorry. <laughs> Next time, I'll just leave it dirty. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I try to carve out a, a, a space. You know, so if, if things are like that, my, my little own carvings. You know, it depends on your relationship to the person. <laughs> Like you're, you know, and, 
if I have to stay a long time in a place like that, and the person isn't offended by my cleaning myself, then I just clean myself. As long as they're not offended by it. As long as I don't care. And if I have to stay more than a few days, then I'll just start cleaning. Does that make sense? It's, it's a very individual answer. But at least try to make your own little something that's your own, whatever, whatever space is under your control. <laughs> It's like when I went to university, um, I, in university they, at least in those days, they assigned you a roommate. So I, I remember that for the second semester, my roommate never, ever, ever cleaned the room. Like, ever. Never. So I cleaned the room. Now, I didn't touch her stuff, but I, you know, I, just, I just cleaned the room. At least her stuff I left dusty. Wasn't going to mess with her individuals. But doesn't one make that like kind of consciousness on you that I'm the one who does, no one, that one person is not doing? So would it be better, so you're saying it might be better to be dirty and humble? think about you, not really, yeah. It might be better to be clean and humble. The mind is really interesting like this. The mind says to us, you can't do the right thing because if you do the right thing, you'll get proud. So why don't you do the wrong thing so you can stay humble? Very strange. The mind is really interesting. By the way, that's a song that gets sung to everybody. Yes, has everybody heard that song? Everybody heard that song? Don't, don't do the right thing because then you'll be proud. You'll be critical. So do the right thing and also be humble. You can say, maybe this person is so advanced. Maybe this person is on such a level of Krishna consciousness that they're like Gorkish or Dasbabaji. And they don't need a clean environment in order to remember Krishna. But me, I'm a fallen soul, and if I don't have a nice environment, I'll forget Krishna. You could also think, you know, maybe I'm cleaner than this person, but maybe, you know, I have another problem that they don't have. Maybe they're kinder than I am. You understand? Maybe they're more regulated than I am. You know, there's always a way to be humble. Is there anybody else? Is that all right? Believe me, there's always some way in which we can feel lower than anybody. If you look for it. Just like there's always a way we can feel better than anybody. Have you noticed that? Wait, does anyone we deal with, we can find a way to feel superior to them. Correct? So you know what? Anyone we deal with, we can find a way to feel that they're superior. You know, you can find some way in which they're superior to you. It's always the case. Even if they're a demon. Find something about them that we can find as superior. This should be the mood of the development. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. How to get out of the smaller goodness sometimes? Go 
how to get out of the mode of goodness. Use the mode of goodness for yourself, you mean for ourselves? Or in our preaching? Preaching I already talked about. I'd say the best way is to really hear about Krishna and hang out with people that are on a transcendental platform so that you'll want it. Because bhakti is, is not just peace and equanimity. Bhakti is very dynamic emotion. And just peace and equanimity gets boring. Yes? It's a lot better than the mode of passion, but it does get boring. So hear about Krishna's activities and become more attracted to fainting because Krishna is in the coils of the Kaliya serpent and being detached. You, know, you don't want to just say, oh, Krishna is in the Kaliya serpent. I am neutral and detached. Whether he dies or not doesn't matter to me because I am in the mode of goodness. Is that what you want? Or do you want to go, oh, Krishna's dying? <laughs> You know, ultimately, we don't want just peace and equanimity. Ultimately, we want to experience an intense emotion and intense attachment. It's ultimately what we want. So work at becoming attracted to that, and that will push you out of the moment goodness. Okay, thank you very much. Shula Prabhupada, Kija.